here with Machen, which uh, puts us really in the second half of the sixth chapter, which is the penultimate chapter, the one before the end, um, on salvation, okay, the doctrine of salvation, and then finally, uh, in the end, the next, next week, Lord willing, and with the doctrine of the church, which I think is just a good job of kind of pulling together and culminating the, the whole book, being the last chapter. So before we get into the text or talk about the text, which is more accurate, I want to kind of read this initial paragraph to remind us, because it occurred to me as I was pulling these notes together, that we use the term liberal here, uh, um, and it means all sorts of things. Right? It means, uh, and I think largely, which is what's in the blurb here, the first thing that comes to mind is kind of current political source of orientation. Right, a conservative orientation or a liberal orientation. Uh, we might say a liberal Democrat, or someone might say like a liberal Republican, meaning that you know, he's more progressive in certain areas than, um, than, others, or than, than ordinarily conservatives would be and so on. So all of that political talk, all it, I bring it up for is because we use it all the time, and that's probably what we think when we hear these words. But liberal really comes from the word liber, which means free. Liberty is freedom, and a liberal historically, is someone who is uh, one variety or another, uh, propounding and promoting freedom, right? uh, promoting liberty and freedom, uh, particularly liberty and freedom uh, of citizenry and so on against powers and kind of uh, the limiting of powers. We talked about maybe the Magna Carta and things like that a couple weeks ago, I can't remember. Uh, but that's the sort of the liberal tradition in kind of society and politics is one of maximizing the amount of freedom uh, that people have organized and, and uh, tailored freedom. So when it comes down to Machen, and we're talking about liberals, it's a, kind of a narrower meaning, a more, a more specific meaning than just a, a general orientation toward liberty or toward freedom, or again in our context, a political orientation that has certain things attached to it. In the case of the liberals in Machen's day, and that were called modernists or liberals, uh, they were essentially anti-supernaturalists. They, they didn't really, be, they either believed that the, the supernatural, that is beyond nature, beyond the things that we can perceive with our senses and so on, uh, that there might be something out there. These are Christians, by the way. Uh, that there might be something out there, but we can't know it. We don't know it. It doesn't seem to impact or in, in our thinking it doesn't matter with what we're doing. Um, and this is within the Christian church. Right? There are people like this, not just in the pews, not just people who are sitting out there thinking, this whole thing is a bunch of hogwash and bunk, and all we really know is you know, evolutionary theory or whatever they have in mind, something like that. Sure, there's always people like that in the pews, but more problematically, there are people like that in the pulpit, and right? in the teaching and, and instructing kind of capacities and offices of the church um, who simply didn't believe the Bible anymore. Is that so they wanted to kind of keep the trappings of it, particular things, and... A bit cynically, I would say that the, the major trapping they want to keep is the authority and money of the church. That's probably the most the driving feature. Is like there's this institution that has lasted for centuries and centuries and centuries and has enormous amounts of uh, sway among people's lives and enormous amounts of money and power. And it's like, well, that's kind of hard to give up, isn't it? If you find yourself in a position where you're leading a, an institution like that and you don't really believe in what the institution historically has held and taught. That's, uh, that's is kind of a problem, right? And, and that's a problem that's, that's occurring, kind of coming to a head here at the beginning of the 20th century, where the, the American churches, in particular, but coming out of Europe, and particularly coming out of Germany, but the Americans were the worst, because it was like a knockoff version, first of all, of liberalism. And, uh, and it just kind of infected the churches. It worked its way through. And Mason's standing up going, hang on, guys. 
hang on, you know, this thing that's working its way through the churches isn't Christianity. It kind of looks like it in some ways, and it sounds like it in some ways, but it's not, and that's the purpose of this book. It says that these liberals, that is to say these unbelieving anti-supernaturalists, by and large, who are operating within the church, need to be identified and to get out. Go do something else. Go, go do their Unitarian thing or whatever they want, but don't call themselves Christians and try to operate within the Christian church. So that's, that's the meaning of liberal or modernist is tied in very specifically with that debate and that kind of uh, that war within the Christian church, in particular within the Presbyterian church um, in the early 20th century. Bob? Yeah, right. So, that's a good question. So, the question is, like, so, so there are certain churches that are definitely massively wealthy, and their you know, pockets are deep and long. Um, and there are, it, it really, any kind of established church is going to have that, because the establishment is when the state, this is something we'll be talking about in Romans 13 here, but anyway, when, when the state says there is a church that is the state church, right, it is an operation of the, that usually enriches the church enormously. Uh, and if, if it's that way for years, then the, it, it enriches the church enormously through the years. So you can think of any established church, any state church is going to probably have some deep pockets and things like that. And also positions of social power and, and uh, things like that. The, uh, the fundamentalist churches that kind of break off are not. They're kind of poor and, and small, and there's not a lot of clout there, right? There's not a lot of money there, typically. Um, so that's a good question, because it's not all the same. But you, you find that the smaller podunk churches aren't really all that liberal. They tend to be more conservative, even in these terms, you know, in, in Machen. Uh, but the big money, big established churches, ah, that's, that's where the immediate attack is, people who want to yeah, keep that prestige and money and influence and so on. Yeah? So what big established, I'll uh, say, qualified reform church has deep pockets, you know, has, has that, if any? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, so the, the question is, like, in, like in current contexts? I guess it doesn't matter. I don't know the answer to any of it. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, like what, he said, what his question was and regarding money. Sure. So, I mean, you, you I say that all the, the fundamental churches are small. They tend to be, yeah. And I, I guess I, I don't have a reason to disagree, but I'm just curious about if there's any deep-pocketed, money-influenced, established church proclaiming the gospel in its entirety today. That's a good question, um, and I, I imagine the answer is yes. I don't, I don't have one for you, but I think if you're thinking about those things and noticing, just those categories are helpful as you're kind of thinking through what's going on. Um, but I'll leave it and get back here. I appreciate that. Don't get me wrong. Okay, so that was a summarization of that first paragraph. We won't, we won't read it. Um, the uh, so getting to pages 111 to 115 there, however. Uh, kind of puts a little more commentary, a little more uh, indicative statements in here rather than just questions. The love of God, get your fingers there on page 115. The love of God, and not his supposed curmudgeonly coolness, uses coolness in the text, is behind the atonement. That is put together. The love of God, not God's curmudgeonliness, as it were, uh, is behind the atonement. That love is the only source of true joy. How can we increase our joy in God? Now, he mentions that as you look, look in the text there. That's, he says, hey, these liberals, they really want to maximize joy, like the experience of, of knowing God and, and engaging with God, and particularly in worship, and, 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 and fostering joy in the Christian experience with God. Um, and what's their 
tack, or what's the what's, what, do, what do the liberals do uh, in order to try to foster that sort of joy among the worshippers, among the Christians uh, that they serve? They kind of see if you can remember that a little bit. Yeah. So the emphasize sin is the answer, and, and, and along with sin, any doctrine that doesn't feel good. Okay, that's, uh, whatever, like, in, in the, you know, Mason talks about the, uh, the old theology, the old kind of standard way of, uh, biblical way of talking about God, both in his love and in his wrath, uh, both in his patience, but also in his judgment and so on, that all that's there. And the liberal attack is, well, just talk about the half that feels good. That, now, that's, that's a tactic that you'll see all the time. And, and, you know, I would think a pretty high percentage of churches you walk into a lot of the scripture is simply ignored or forgotten about or just not examined or touched because it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to talk about the wrath of God. It doesn't feel good to talk about the justice of God uh, and so on. But the scripture talks plenty about that. The liberal attack was, well, just take the stuff that feels good and teach on that. Right? Talk about the love of God. Talk about the patience of God. Talk about the beauty of God and these sorts of things. But don't talk about these other aspects of God as they will, uh, they'll take away from the joy. Right, who, is, who looks at uh, God's justice and is joyful? And I think the answer is a Christian. <laughs> I think that's the answer to that question. Now, we, I think if any of you have spent time, and I certainly hope you have, thinking about the justice of God, thinking about the, 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 that it's a, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God and so on, um, that you're... Your emotions, your passions, your, the way you kind of interact with those ideas and, and the reality of, of God is kind of scary. Right? God kind of scares you. God should kind of scare you. Shouldn't he? Shouldn't the almighty absolute scare you just, just by virtue of the fact? It's, it's a little bit like standing by like you know, a huge pool of water, a huge ocean or something like that. It's like, wow, just overwhelmed by the magnitude of the thing. How much more? God. And I think that uh, it's interesting where we, it's a little bit like um, secret sensitivity, where we, we think we want certain things. So the church kind of organizes around the certain things that people think they want. But Christians, people don't really know what they want. And they don't, certainly don't know what they need, oftentimes, when it comes to knowledge of God. And God's given us his word, all of it. Not just the parts that feel good, but all of it. And um, his, I think Mason's point here, we'll get, maybe get into the text a little bit, is that the the, uh, the tack or the, the tactic of just trying to preach and present and teach on things that people feel good about is a failing tactic. It doesn't work. Okay? I mean, and partially it doesn't work because Christians are Christians they are going to open the Bible and read. They're going to read parts of the Bible that don't make them feel good, that they have to f- struggle with and figure out. And, and, of course, the justice of God, the wrath of God, is one of those that is uncomfortable. But it is the very basis Right, the background of the good news is the bad news. Right, and that's all kind of a part of a package, all part of a, part of a piece together. So here I'll read, the liberals' tack was to reject, or at least ignore, the old theology and focus on warm fuzzies. Uh, Mason asked two questions about this tack. Does it work, and is it true? Does it work, and is it true? Poke your head in here. Any, any thoughts? Or Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Sure. 
Yeah, uh, and that's, I think that's a, it doesn't satisfy. Um, and he makes comments in there about the liberals of Christ that couldn't be an object of worship. You know, it's like they got the, they got God tuned down to the point where he's not particularly impressive anymore. Uh, and this is the same thing with, with Jesus. And in this case, they like, and this, this is, I think, uh, something that we might struggle with, um, is, is they kind of like... On two things. On the one hand, the uh, the wrath of God that there were all as sons of Adam under the wrath of God, right? We're, that's, he's he's angry with the wicked every day, and so we have an angry God, but we also have a loving God who sent His own Son to take on human flesh and be the sacrifice for us. The liberals want to say, "Yeah, well, you old theology guys, you just want to talk about the curmudgeonly justice of God. Uh, we want to talk about the love of God and redemption." And, of course, we would respond and say, well, we want to talk about both of them. We need to talk about all that because it's the wrath of God and the love of God that stand behind the atonement, that stand behind what Jesus accomplished. That uh, Jesus accomplished his own pouring out of his blood, without which there is no forgiveness of sins. But it's not just the wrath of God that's driving that. In fact, it's the love of God that's driving the redemption. It's out of love that God sent his son. And he has a line in here, you know, is there someone other than God that's made this atonement? So if we want to characterize God as this kind of like curmudgeonly angry, you know, uh, up there waiting to like, you know, receive some kind of, some kind of blood so he can cease being angry, that's kind of half true, maybe more than half. Um, But he's the one that provides the blood, right? God himself will provide the lamb, says Abraham. And so he does. Right? That's, that's something that I think the liberals were, because they want to bifurcate, they want to split things in two and say, here's your part over here and here's our part, which you might, that tactic is uh, pretty common even politically now, currently, this very second. Uh, but we say, no, these, these come together in a glorious way that actually reveals the love of God. God's the offended party, and he's the one who is overcoming that in his son Jesus Christ out of his eternal love. So that's and, and that love then is that that very love that redemptive love in the redemp- in the atonement of Christ manifests is the basis for true joy. It's, it's the, the eternal love of God manifests in Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection. That's the basis for joy, not just kind of like you know trying to make you feel good, but a true lifelong joy of the love of God for me, for us, for the church, uh, to the point where. He's willing to sacrifice himself for us. So that's this, we need to kind of flesh out all those and keep them together. And in that, I think we really do see manifested the great glory of the love of God versus just ignoring wrath, ignoring justice, and just say, look, isn't God so nice and fluffy? And, you know, he's like, anyway, just come big and give him a hug uh, kind of thing, as opposed to, you know, bow down before the one who has every right in justice to condemn you, but instead took that wrath upon himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. I think we have a, a fulsome view of the love of God. Any, any thoughts or particulars on that one? Joy that's inexpressible. 
Right. And I, I like that the image of the sugar on the tongue is great um, in, in our kind of emotional passions that, you know, things come and go, right? Um, we need something more significant, more founded than all that. Um, though it encompasses that. I think it encompasses moments of highs and lows. Um, but, a, yeah, this, this joy that we seek, um, I think if we can define it biblically, is, is this kind of like, almost like the depths of the river that don't appear to move or something down there, but they're, they're, they're keeping it steady. Um, and that's looking at the whole fulsome view of God, including his wrath and his, his love together. Any comments on All right. 115 to 117. Supernatural conversion is necessary for sinners to be saved and find joy in the true and living God. How then do liberals counsel us to deal with sin and our attendant guilt? Uh, in what ways do people try to deal with their guilt? This is a particularly interesting one. Um, in that people feel guilty. I think people have guilt feelings because they are indeed guilty. Um, and and so how do you know how do people try to make up for that, or what do they try to do? He has a couple of kind of things to say, but maybe they sparked your your minds. What people do to kind of handle or deal with guilt? So you got like ways to try to like shell out or do, right? Either you know th- things to do for people, or as he kind of gets, you're trying to make up for it, trying and even trying to make up for it by hurting yourself. I, I need to hurt because I know I've hurt or I, I feel guilty, um, and so you kind of get this self-flagellation kind of mentality that I need to hurt because I'm guilty, uh, which I think is deeply true, and I think it comes out in lots of different ways, uh, including people deforming themselves. And hurting themselves. I think that's part of the dealing with guilt. Do you have something there, Bob? Uh, there are the honorable people that will feel, feel guilt, but then there are those that don't feel guilt at all. That's true. So there, there's, a, there's a range of, of guilt feelings, and some people have um, hardened their hearts to the point where they're not even really, you know, they're not perceiving those guilt feelings, though they're probably just suppressing them. Right? Um, makes me think of not. In the same name, but like uh, uh, the Rough Riders, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, someone said about him, like he just kept going and going and going as fast as he could because he didn't want what was behind him catching up. <laughs> Whatever's back there, I don't want it. I'm going this way, uh, and that's kind of a way to deal with things. But it's not a matter of guilt; it's a matter of uh, I got some wreckage back there that's going to haunt me if I, you know, if I slow down a bit. <laughs> yeah, again. Sure. And so far, it's very much the same thing of the gift to feel pain when you need to move your hand off the runner and so on, right? That, that, that's a, the, the guilt feelings are actually. So, but the problem is, in the perverted heart of a sinner, those guilt feelings, if they're going to be paid attention to, are going to kind of manifest themselves in some kind of auto, you know, self-saving sort of thing, uh, which often involves pain or, or suffering on my part uh, because I know that I'm guilty and have made other people. Um, suffer and so on. So I think that's that's an interesting look, and, and it's a uh, you know what um, as, as Christians we say I am guilty, and I do deserve to suffer. And then here's this amazing thing: I suffered vicariously in the one who made the atonement. Right? As we're baptized into Christ, Christians, we're baptized into His death, which means that His death is our death. 
His suffering is our suffering. Right? And in that, we have vicarious redemption. In the other, in the substitute, we have that, uh, not only those feelings being met, but even the desire that we should suffer. Right? It's, it's right and proper that we suffer for our sins. Um, but we don't take that upon ourselves to do it. We look to another who's done it. And he hasn't done it just in our place, but we're actually baptized into it, right? We're spiritually connected with that suffering such that it's ours. And that resurrection is ours as well, right? Uh, so that, I think that's an important aspect of, of uh, that, well, an insight that Mason's having into the way people deal with guilt and, uh, and kind of bringing pain and suffering upon themselves because they know they're guilty. Some people downplay their guilt as well. Oh, for sure. They, they think, well, my sin isn't as bad as his, so I'm okay. Yeah, that's, that's a tactic and a very common one. Um, and we, we don't, I don't know, I think, I don't know that I have my finger on this age or any other age as far as it goes, uh, but I think there's a range of things that people deal with when it comes to guilt, and the biggest one is just forgetting it, ignoring it, but those who can't ignore it, it plagues them, right? Then they have to deal with something in, in that respect, so... Um, the time one. He had one about the loss of time, not being able to get it back. Uh, that I thought was fantastic. Though I cannot find it currently. Yeah, right, right. Um, yeah, well, the fear of death, you know, is... Yeah, from, from Hebrews chapter 2, we'll tie in this morning a little later, too, yeah, that Christ has come to release us from this, like, uh, this slavery because of the fear of death, because we know we're guilty, and along with all of that, we know that we'll stand before a holy God. Everybody knows it, right? We're, we're born in, in the image of God, knowing that we will be judged, that God will be the righteous judge, and that rightly horrifies us. That should be a point of terror for us. And leading us to the gospel instead of to either denial or you know, self-salvation m- modes of you know that sort of thing. Um, okay. situation in life and relationships and things like that. Um, yeah, and, and the fact that to some degree, I, none of us feel particularly, none of us feel 100% you know, um, comfortable in our own skin. Right? There's always something like that. I think in, in, our, in our youth, maybe even a little more, and then you think of the transgender sort of thing. So do, do you feel weird? Do you feel like, you know, like, yeah, everybody does. Right? Everybody has strange feelings and strange sexual desires. And that's, I mean, I think it varies with people, but that's all there. And then kind of figuring out how to diagnose that apart from the Bible, saying, well, this is all the case because you're a sinner in Adam. And here's the solution of not only trusting in Christ, but following Christ as well. Resting in him and following him is the solution to sorting out not only the guilt feelings, but then the weird other things that, that go on that maybe aren't, maybe aren't even guilt, just are, are problems with us because of our fallenness. 
um, as well. So, good, good thought on that. The, uh, we'll move to the third one here. Regeneration, justification, and faith. Okay, so he gets from this guilt issue into the, you know, the, I guess the meat of the Christian answer to what we do about that. We look to Christ, right? We must, we, we have to be reborn. We have to have a work of God in us to, uh, to move us out of the old man and into the, the new. So supernatural conversion is necessary for sinners to be saved and find joy in the true living God. Oh, we already did that one. Um, regeneration, justification, faith. I don't know why I read that one. The Christian experience of salvation begins with a supernatural work, new birth, or regeneration. Now, let me just mention, just because it's fun, uh, that regeneration precedes faith. Okay, so God does a work of birthing a sinner out of death into life, and then the sinner believes. Right? Not the other way around. The sinner doesn't believe, and then, and then is born again, which is the standard, I think, way of talking about it. Billy Graham, right on down. Uh, so, anyway, regeneration comes before faith. We, we believe of a believing, living heart because we've been given a living heart. The heart of stone won't do that kind of thing. Okay. So Christian experience of salvation begins with supernatural work, rebirth, or regeneration. Sometimes also conversion is another name, though that's oftentimes uh, a broader term. Okay. How does this relate to justification? I asked that meaning twice. Um, so um, how does regeneration relate to justification? The two theological terms. Justification is what? Justification is an act of God's free grace, whereby God forgives us of all our sins and counts us as righteous only for the sake of Christ's righteousness imputed to us and received by faith alone. Right? So that's the, this kind of act of God where the believing, the, the believing sinner is counted righteous and viewed through the righteousness of Christ and called just. Uh, we're, we're, and so you get this idea of being at the same time a sinner and a saint, at the same time a sinner and righteous. Um, and, and then this, the life of faith is one where God sanctifies us and moves us and makes us more and more like Jesus, sometimes painstakingly slow, as far as that goes. Um, so how does then justification relate to regeneration? Yeah. So it's got to come first. Um, not, and I think, you know, I, although I think regeneration and justification can occur at the same time, right? God regenerates the sinner and he believes now, right? Uh, but sometimes I think God calls, there's a, there's a longer process involved in that. You get that with like the awakenings and stuff like that and a lot of theology from Jonathan Edwards thinking about and other theologians about calling and what it is, you know, what it is to be awakened to your sinful condition, to be knowledgeable of your guilt before God and yet still not trust in Jesus, right? That would be an awakening, they would call it in the in the 18th century, that they're awakened to their lost estate, uh, but not yet regenerated, not yet born anew. Um, and is anybody, well, I'll put it this way. I'll ask the question. These are all parts, so we talk about regeneration and faith and justification and adoption and sanctification and glorification. They're all part of a whole. They're all part of this work of salvation that Christ has wrought and is working in our lives now, and will bring to completion. Right? But they're all particular parts, and they have their part to play, and, and they're, they're important parts to play. And the important part for, re, for regeneration is it comes first. God does the regenerating work. God does the new birth. He's the one who births us from above. And it's common enough to say, 
Can anyone have a hand in their own uh, generation here on earth? Kind of come to your parents in a dream before you were around and say, hey, listen, would you get busy so I could get out of here? Um, no. Right? You, you, God gives birth and there you are. Right? Then you kind of figure it out years down the road what's going on here. Oh, I guess I'm part of this living thing uh, in humanity and so on. Right? We're just birthed into this thing. And in a certain way, the kingdom of God is the same thing. God gives us birth into it. It's new. Right? It's, it's a new work in us. And um, without which, nothing else happens. Okay, it's the beginning point of the whole, we may call a train of salvation with many cars, or the entire work of salvation. The first thing that happens is God must move in us. And when he does then, he gives us a heart of flesh uh, and, and gives the gift of faith. By faith, we're justified. Right? We're not justified by regeneration. Okay? Uh, someone who's merely regenerated isn't saved yet. They're on the way. This is the first step. The major part is believing. And you can't believe from a dead heart. You can only believe from a living heart, hence regeneration comes first. Um, but no one's justified by their regeneration. They're justified in order to be. I'm mean, sure so no one's justified by their regeneration. They're born again in order to believe that they should not only be justified, but that they should be sanctified and finally glorified. The whole ball of wax, right? But each part has its important aspects as it plays out. And so much Christian um, controversy is around that. Which parts do what? What is the salvation that God has wrought? You know, so, yeah, Darlene. Well, it's helpful for me to remember that have a, a significant part to play in um, sanctification, right? In our, in our being conformed to the image of Christ. Uh, th- those are parts uh, that Christ brings into that process. But yeah, right from the beginning, we're pronounced righteous, pronounced just, um, when we in and of ourselves are certainly not. And, uh, and then God works on us, and that's part of this whole deal. So now back to the liberals here. Um, what's the problem with this, this view of conversion, of regeneration, uh, and faith and justification. Just kind of take a stab. What's, what's the liberals' problem with this whole way of talking about uh, the beginnings of salvation and so on? Yeah. That could be. Yeah, that could be part of it. That it's just a kind of human autonomy and trying to scrap for that. Uh, that's probably behind about everything. <laughs> Comes down to it. Yeah, Darlene. Good. I like that. Um, that's maybe a good kind of way of focusing in on what 
I think Nation's at least pointing out, he said, you know, he talks about faith, and we'll back it back out into regeneration and then in the broader. But he talks about faith and says, sometimes these guys talk about, what is it, psychological, the psychological phenomenon of faith. Um, what is that? What, is, what does he mean, and what do you think these liberals mean, if you can pull together? The psychological phenomenon of faith. I remember listening to a book. I was above the Christian school. I think it was like 8th grade or 7th grade. I was in Bible class, and this, our Bible teacher was reading a book for us about a, um, a, a man who defected from the Soviet Union, became a Christian and defected from the Soviet Union, had this kind of harrowing adventure, uh, getting out and whatnot. And uh, they, had, they had hooked him up to some computer or something like that, and this is back in the 80s or something, to, um, you know, to figure out if his story could even be true. It was so fantastic. Anyway, he tells the story, and they put it in his computer, and it says, uh, uh, this is impossible, you couldn't do it. And then he added the detail that the whole time he was in the water doing what he was doing, he was praying to God. And the computer says, oh, you were praying? That makes it possible. Some computer analysis they ran. And that was, that was what he said is, oh, well, if you're praying, that will that'll embolden your heart, and that will raise you up, and that will connect you with something greater, whatever, things like that. Um, and that that makes things possible that wouldn't be possible without it. Right? Just the psychological uh, reality of believing in something does something for you that not believing doesn't. Okay, well, okay, that's great. That's exactly what he's talking about by the psychological phenomenon. And he says it's not an issue of just having faith. No one who has faith has faith in faith. They have faith in an object. The person who has faith in Christ has faith in Christ. Christ is worthy of faith. Jesus is worthy of faith. Not faith itself. Faith is grabbing on to Jesus, an object of faith. Um, and that's the Christian faith. We don't have faith in faith. We don't think just faith by itself, like Constantine, you know, working up some kind of belief in something, whether it's true or not, uh, whether it has any relation to reality. Um, it's just having faith. You'll hear kind of people talk that way sometimes now. But Mason says it's not like that. The, the Christian faith is a trusting and resting in Jesus, who is the divine human who made atonement for us on the cross of Calvary. That's a problem for the liberals. They don't want the divine human making atonement on the cross of Calvary. They want the idea of Christ floating around to impact your life now and here. And that's the, that's the extent of it. We don't want to go back into history and into the reality of the thing. First, we're trying to deny that. Uh, and so this whole idea of you must be born again, well, that's a supernatural work. Already embarrassing, right? Um, so, but, but then it goes from there, because then you've got the supernatural work of the incarnation, further embarrassment, and so on, right? That's, the whole thing's kind of cut from the beginning, where when you get to the end, you really can't even have the Christian faith, right? You just have, like, feelings. And that's good enough for us, I guess, and we move on as liberals. Yeah? You ask the same why question, like with you know grabbing onto the current uh, cosmological myth of of uh, evolution. Why would Christians come in and say, "Oh, well, look, we evolved out of whatever over millions, and millions of years"? Well, I mean, you read the Bible, you're not going to come up with evolution. It's just like not there, right? Uh, but Mary and Christians hold to it because it's like you're kind of foolish if you don't hold to it, right? 
everyone out there is like, oh, this is the way things are, and Christians are like, yeah, I guess so. Maybe we should read that into the Bible then. I don't think it's quite so self-conscious, although sometimes I think with liberals it is. They really know they're unbelieving. They're really doing unbelieving work. But with a lot of people, it's not quite like that. But we're, we kowtow before the power of the world, for the power of the ideas of what's around us and the, the, you know, the, the doctrines that drive our age. We, uh, we, tend, to, we tend to be scared of them and want to, you know, in fear of man. Yeah. I get why Sure. Well, you know, he offers that in this chapter at some point, or maybe the next one, I think it's the next one, where he says, you know, maybe you should just be Unitarian. You know, that's what, that's what they do. You can get over there and do that, but that's not what Christians do. Right? And so just trying to put things in the right place. Um, okay, um, so but what's the psychological phenomenon, notion of faith? Rejecting counterfeit faith, how does Machen describe true saving faith? Probably on page 121. Might be worth reading at least like a passage out of the book for you here at some point. Hmm. So this is the bottom of page 120. I'll just read this little paragraph. It's, it's a good one as far as summarizing what we've just been talking about. Such counterfeits, the, the psychological phenomena of faith and so on, such counterfeits should be removed, not out of love for destruction, but in order to leave room for the pure gold the existence of which is implied in the presence of the counterfeits. Faith is often based upon error, but there would be no faith at all unless it were sometimes based upon truth. But if, if Christian faith is based upon truth, then it is not the faith which saves the Christian, but the object of the faith. And the object of the faith is Christ. Faith, then, according to the Christian view, means simply receiving a gift to have to have faith in Christ means to cease trying to win God's favor by one's own character. The man who believes in Christ simply accepts the sacrifice which Christ offered on Calvary. The result of such faith is a new life and all good works, but the salvation itself is absolutely a free gift of God. So, anyway, contrasting with what we call evangelical faith, saving faith, which just rests in Christ. To trust the word of God, to trust the promises of God, it rests in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. It doesn't try to strive and do. It just rests in Christ. Uh, and, and, the, and the important thing is the object of our faith. What are we believing in? Not belief itself. And I think that's one of the problems of like you know studying you know, like the, the faiths of the world. Um, or I'm trying to think of the common terminology in the college classroom for it. Uh, multiple religious traditions. Was it? Yeah, like a multi-pluralistic view of religion where you can, hey, let's study Hinduism. Let's study Islam. Let's study Christianity and kind of see how they're the same and see how they're different. Comparative religion. There we go. Um, I think, okay, well, there's some value there. I, I don't mind looking around and, and seeing how Christianity kind of stacks up and, and the thinking works out. But we have to remember that we, it's not just everyone has faith and they put it in something that's true enough. Everyone has a kind of believing standpoint. But the Christian faith, the faith of justification, the faith of the Christian is very specific. It's denying yourself and looking to the one. Resting in the one because he's the righteousness of God. I'm the wickedness. He's the love of God. I'm the one who deserves justice and so on. So it's the object of the faith that's all of the difference. Not just that there are some things that we believe that we can't prove or we say that we can't demonstrate or some notion of faith just that way, right? A lower notion of faith. Um, so, yeah, the, the Christian faith, he like, brings to a fine point and says the liberals don't believe this stuff. They don't teach this stuff. They're doing other things, though they're using the same language. So it kind of sounds like they're teaching the Christian faith, but but they're not. Okay, the... Next section, which we'll probably not even really get into here, um, 
though I'd like to at least begin it, is are Christians really regenerated? And he says one of the problems with this view, this supernaturalistic view of redemption and regeneration and new birth is like, you look at a Christian and you think, well, that, that guy's been reborn, huh? Has he? Does his life manifest this new birth and this new life? And this is often enough, it doesn't. Right? That's kind of part of the problem. It's easy enough to look at the Christian church and say, yeah, you're a bunch of sinners too. Uh, haven't made much progress, have you? And so on. And, it's, and so he appeals to, we can just read this and end on it, Galatians 2.20. Let's look at Galatians 2.20. That very famous verse. <laughs> Got to find Galatians. Okay, so Galatians 2.20, and he appeals to this on both halves of this. On the, uh, you know, has it really been done? Uh, and, and then what's it look like, kind of. So, 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ... It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, now I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And uh, this kind of brings together those two things, and maybe we'll flesh them out next week. But the idea is, this is a matter of faith. We're, we're resting invisibly in the one who died 20 centuries ago and came back from the dead. That's an issue of faith. That's the, that, that, that regeneration is an issue of trusting God and taking him at his word. Right? But then the life that we now live, having Christ having given himself for us, we live in, we live in faith um, now in the Son of God. Right? So we're, we're, we're being transformed right along the way. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the whole thing's of faith. Right. It begins in faith, we're resting in Christ Jesus, but also our, our life of faith as we, as we serve Christ and he works that grace in us is one of faith as, as well. Um, so salvation is from faith to faith, um, though, again, you might think of justification as kind of faith just all by itself. Bare faith uh, that gives rise to, out of a heart, to service, and the faith of sanctification is we are participants in that. Right? God draws us in and makes us participants in the life and the growth of faith. And the Christian life is one of faith as well, where we're trusting what God has said about us and, and seeking to grow into who God has called us to be and what he said about us in Christ Jesus. Uh, any closing thoughts or questions? Yeah, Darlene? Well, I think it's really important when you're considering you know, Christians in general and different denominations and how it, yeah, why would someone who doesn't believe in supernatural things still call themselves a Christian? And, you know, the devil's not very creative, but he is very cunning. And he has forever uh, loved to plant one of his own workers in the midst of the church that causes mischief. And we, we should never forget that we fight against those kinds of powers and principalities. That's, and, it, and it's a real thing. It's not something that we have. It's a real thing. And it's, that cosmic battle has always gone on and always will go on until it's done. Yeah. And even, even grabbing on to that, like, li- living here in our little congregation, 
um, where we love each other, where we're committed to one another, uh, not just to our friends. It's easy to kind of just get your friends and talk, but we're committed to each other, to belonging here and to healing here, right? This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so let us love one another uh, in faith in the one who loved him and gave himself up for us all the way to the cursed death of the cross. Let's pray in his name.